Hi Venters, welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with sports journalist Bryn Law. Bryn has worked in sports media for 30 years. He spent 21 of those at Sky Sports, where he's made his name as a news reporter, sports reporter, commentator and presenter. Four years ago, he left Sky Sports and has been working freelance ever since for a range of different outlets. Many a time I tuned into Sky Sports News to check the scores for my team, Huddersfield Town. It would be Bryn Law delivering the great news of a 90-minute winner, or a 4-0 drubbing, or a boring 0-0 draw. He's also the author of two books, Zombie Nation Awakes, Welsh Football's Odyssey to Euro 2016, The Diary of a Reporter Supporter, and Don't Take Me Home, on tour with the Red Wall at Euro 2016. In this episode, we chart his journey of 30 years in sports journalism, his proud Welsh roots and his love for Wrexham Town FC, and what he's made of the last two seasons under new owners and Hollywood stars Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. We also talk about social class and the challenges of being a freelance sports journalist too. For Bryn's mental health, we discuss the pressure of doing a job where you constantly have to put on a brave face and smile through whatever you might be going through in your personal life, the state of men's mental health right now, the COVID-19 lockdowns and how exercise has greatly benefited his physical and mental health. Bryn has spoken openly and bravely about the death of his friend Gary Speed to suicide on a few different platforms throughout the years, so we won't be discussing it on this podcast. If you'd like to hear that story, you are always welcome to go and find it elsewhere. So this is how my conversation with Bryn Law went. Bryn Law, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It's been a bit of a uh, roller coaster to get this uh, to get this done this morning, but we are here now. It is an absolute pleasure to be chatting to a a former Sky Sports news legend and someone I spent many a time looking through my fingers at when uh, it went to Jeff Stelling on a soccer Saturday and he said, "There's been a goal at John Smith Stadium, but for who? Bryn Law." And then it was just a pause, and then it went to you, and it was either a goal or an absolute howler for our team. So how are you, mate? I'm okay, thank you. Yeah, it has been a roller coaster getting this set up, but uh, that's my life these days. Very much the roller coaster. But hopefully, I brought you largely good news from Huddersfield. I <laughs> yeah, I think so, mate. Maybe I think some so. Bad as well mixed in, uh, you know. It's yeah, game, isn't it? it was either you or Neil Mellor who was giving me the news. So it was always that delayed pause, which used to absolutely stress me out whenever it used to go to you. But yeah, you have been a titan of sports journalism for a number of years, and you continue to be so. And I'm really excited to chart this journey with you as we talk about your journalism and your mental health journey, mate. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, let's do it. Let's start your pod by talking about this 30-year journalism journey you have been on, mate. So take me back to the beginning first. How and why did you become inspired to be a sports journalist? Where did your love for broadcasting or storytelling or reporting come from? And the journey to where you are today? Well, it's quite straightforward, the start of the journey. I can kind of pinpoint it fairly accurately. And it was very early on. 
So I would have been probably six, seven, eight years old and I loved football. I was born in Liverpool, so I grew up in a football mad city. Liverpool was probably the best team in the world at the time. And I was aware of that because my dad was brilliant, he used to take me to games. If you couldn't get into Anfield, he would take me to watch, I think my first ever game was an FA Youth Cup match at Anfield because it was easy to get into that. It took me to Goodison as well because it was easy to get tickets for Everton, but he just took me to football. So I was playing a bit, I was already watching at the age of sort of five, six, seven, and I loved the whole thing. I knew I loved it already, but I also had a sense I probably wasn't very good at football. So I thought there might be another plan needed here. And the big thing, the big inspiration for me was that I used to listen to, in the old days it was Radio 2, the BBC used to do all their football matches on Radio 2. And I would listen to Liverpool games. I'd have gone to bed because there was school the next day and it was a midweek match, but in the European Cup, which Liverpool at this point hadn't won. And I would listen to the games underneath the covers in, in bed. And like I was meant to be asleep, but I'd have a little, as we used to call them, a transistor radio, battery-powered radio, and I would listen to those games. And there were two voices in particular that were very important. Peter Jones was the key, who was one of the Radio 2 commentators, and Alan Parry was his number two commentator. They used to split the commentaries in those days. And Peter Jones in particular, but both he and Alan, I just thought they were brilliant. I just loved what they did and how evocative it was when I heard them talk about, you know, here we are in the Stadium of Light in Lisbon on a cool, mild evening or whatever. It was just the words and the way they used the words that I really, really got into. And that was the point underneath the duvet that I thought, actually, maybe I'd like to do this. And basically plotted a track from from there forward, created a pathway. So went through school, still playing football, still watching football, but started to do like a, there was a talking newspaper for the blind. I'd moved to North Wales by now. There was a talking newspaper for the blind. I did some stuff for that every week at school and I did the sports bit, obviously. Then there was the opportunity to join the local hospital radio commentary team while I was still at school. And so I went along to see them and I got that gig. So I was doing hospital radio commentary at quite an early age. Through university, English and drama degree, and the two elements were key to this because it was the words and the delivery of the words, the English and the drama bit. So again, still on that pathway, got towards the end of the course and got on a broadcast journalism postgrad course at Preston and did a year at Preston, got my qualifications. Even whilst I was at Preston, I started doing some match coverage for a commercial radio station in Wrexham. And then came off the end of the course with a qualification and did more freelance work for them. And I actually got my very first commentary on air, proper on air commentary within about five months of finishing that course. I did a Wrexham game for Marches Sound in the FA Cup. In fact, it was the start of the FA Cup run that led to Wrexham beating Arsenal. But by the time the Arsenal game came round, I did rounds one and two. By the time the Arsenal game came round, I'd moved on to another job elsewhere. And then got a job at Radio Leeds, and Radio Leeds brought me in to work on sport in a specific kind of new sport role that they'd created, which was a new role at that time, that hybrid concept of news and sport working together. Now it's much more commonplace, but um, they were quite cutting-edge Radio Leeds in that period. They became an all-talk station as well. They were the first all-talk station. There's a forerunner to Five Live and all the rest of it. So I got that job, but I had an eye there on doing football commentary. And they said to me, listen, do this job for a while. And at some point, we'll give you the chance to do the thing you really want to do. It was a bit of a journey. It was a lot of getting up early in the morning and sometimes commentating late at night and then getting up early to do the, the early shift the next day, which I was on a permanent earlies at that stage. But I got through it and I got the kind of commentary gig on a full-time basis and then Radio Leeds for seven years, doing all the Leeds United matches, plus Bradford, Huddersfield, Halifax, whoever whoever needed covering, and then got the Sky gig. 
so that was the journey. Uh, like you said, you spent those seven years at Radio Leeds and then you moved to Sky where you've spent the majority of your, your working life, your adult life there. Obviously, there are some things that you can't talk about, but when it comes to this wider journey and this wider time at Sky, just tell me about you know what you learned, your experiences and how it felt when Jeff Stelling does turn to you on Soccer Saturday and, <laughs> and you have your moment in the sun. Well, the Jeff Stelling bits are the best bits by and large because working for Soccer Saturday was an absolute joy because of him, really. Also because I had the sense, I didn't immediately get that. I went to Sky to work as the regional correspondent for the Yorkshire area. I was in Leeds, so they wanted somebody on the ground in Leeds. So when Sky Sports News started, and I was there at the very, very beginning of this thing called Sky Sports News, I was appointed to start as the regional correspondent on this new channel that they were launching called Sky Sports News. So that was my job, was to look after the clubs, predominantly the football clubs, in my patch, and there were plenty of them. But I really went to Sky to be a commentator because that's what I'd done previously. So I, that's what I really wanted to do. So again, like with the BBC, I saw this as a foot in the door, effectively, to go and do what I really wanted to do. Ultimately, it didn't actually quite work out like that. I did do commentary with Sky, quite a lot of commentary with Sky, but it never became a full-time role. But the bit that I did manage to combine the reporter skills with the commentary skills was the Soccer Saturday opportunity. So when I got that chance... I think I fitted quite well with the model that was required for doing Soccer Saturday. The ability to work live, the ability to sum up something that had just happened in not very many seconds, to react to things that were happening while you were talking. Because I'd commentated a lot, I think I probably had that skill set already. But you had to deliver it to camera, of course, as well, which was the added bit. You know, you couldn't refer to notes like I'd previously done on the radio, maybe. So it was combining all the elements, and I really, really enjoyed that show. The team who put that show together were a great team. The producer was a great guy. He was very, very helpful and good guy. Really helped me out. And to be involved as a part of that on a Saturday afternoon or a Tuesday night or whenever was an absolute pleasure because you could go to a nil-nil draw, and I could have driven two hours to somewhere and not see a goal. And if I didn't see a goal and it was a game that was kind of down the pecking order in terms of its status... I might not appear all afternoon. I might be there from one o'clock till, you know, five o'clock, quarter past five during the post-match interviews and not actually appear at all. But, I mean, by and large, you usually appeared once. It may be, <laughs> it might be twice, but I did games where I only appeared twice for sure. But it didn't really matter because you were still a part of the show. And it wasn't about you. It was about the show. It was about everybody contributing to this, this really good thing that, it's a crazy concept. People sit down at 12 o'clock and they watch it till 6. Nobody else does live TV like that. Not for that length of time. It was a radio show, effectively, that they put onto the television. But it really, really worked. And it worked because of the people. So just mm. forward, casting forward, they've got a huge challenge now, post-Jeff, to try and make that thing work. Because he was absolutely the glue that, that bound all that together. But a lovely guy as well. And uh, as well as being one of the, if not the best sports broadcaster, no, the best sports broadcaster, of you know a generation or two frankly he's a really nice guy so i just enjoyed that whole experience other elements that i enjoyed with i covered the wales football team as the international reporter covering wales so i did that for 15 years which was a labor of love for me because i used to travel to watch wales as a fan anyway so i was able to combine this supporter reporter thing there for a long period mostly hugely unsuccessful as it turned out for wales but at the latter end we had a glorious campaign where they qualified for the euros that was at times tricky because it took me away from home a lot but i'd committed to it because it was wales and, and i kind of felt that i was a part of something important and then other bits of it were more difficult the day-to-day -day pressure to produce stories from the patch 
I did 16 years at Sky Sports News and the day-to-day pressure was heavy and every day finished and then another day started and whatever happened the day before counted for almost nothing the day after so you're always starting from from point zero again that could be tough you know if you've got a story that they were really invested in i had it with Leeds united a lot when Leeds united were in the financial trouble that they had when they last went down from the premier league oh god and i spent a lot of time standing outside of ellen road and i had to really get into areas you know, I wanted to be a football commentator because I wanted to watch football matches because I wanted to get paid to watch football matches. That's always been the goal for me. That's been my aim. But now I was having to get into kind of financial aspects and elements. I had to understand how finances worked and, and things like flat pack insolvency, whatever they call it. There were terms that I was now having to grapple with. I find I was talking to accountants probably as much as I was talking to football managers because... This was a change in terms of the way that people perceived sport, football, because previously it had been seen as a sport, football, and now it was seen as something more like an industry. And so you would talk to industry leaders and suddenly we were talking to chief executives and managing directors and chairmen and owners as much as we were talking to managers and right backs and and centre-halves kind of thing. Because we've made football an industry now, so we'll talk about it in, in really in the same tones that we would talk about you know, ICI or any any of the big companies in the city. So there was a switch and Sky Sports News played a huge part in that because we had to talk about stuff all the time. And that need to talk about stuff all the time meant that we had to be all over everything. You know, that could be, there was me just wanting to talk about, go and watch football matches, talk about football. And yeah, I was having to, to do a lot of stuff that took me a long way away from that concept. We're going to talk about the Wales good times and bad times in a bit, including the two books that you've written. But as a presenter, when you're on air, you obviously have to present, pardon the pun, this effervescent, cheery, upbeat demeanour that all presenters have to convey. I imagine that's pretty easy to do when things in your private life are going well and you wake up in the morning in a good mood. But however, when they aren't and you have to continually put that mask on, how much of a challenge is that for your mental health? Yeah, that's a challenge because you pull on a cloak or you put on a mask, whichever one you want to wear, because the person watching has no idea what's going on in your life and has actually probably no real interest in what's going on in your life. You're merely a vessel. Media means the bit in the middle, as I explain on the on the media training courses that I do with football coaches now. So I'm there to deliver something. I'm the conduit for the message from the person over my shoulder who might be the football club or the football manager or whatever to the audience. But I'm just a vessel through which that message kind of travels. So my state of mind, my issues, my problems or concerns at that time are of no relevance to anybody else at that particular moment. You kind of switch on and you switch off. You flick the button. It's go time. It's show time, if you like. You do your thing and then you switch off and then you go back to being the grumpy git again. Like I said in the intro, four years ago, you left Sky and you went freelance. So after spending so many years at Sky, which is you know, the amount of time you spent is almost as old as I am now, which <laughs> don't make you feel too old. But how much of a shock was it going freelance when you'd also you'd become part of this institution for so long? It was a big shock. It still is, <laughs> to be honest, because I'd done six and seven years at the BBC when I was on staff and I did over 20 years at Sky on staff. Now, that's quite straightforward. That means at the end of every month, your salary appears in your bank account. And it's that straightforward, okay? After that, complications. But up to that point, it's quite straightforward. And you have that expectation and that knowledge that it will be there at the end of every month. So that's probably the biggest fundamental change for me 
in a way, elements of the way that I work haven't changed. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later. But where I work from has been the same throughout. And the way I work, in a sense, is not too dissimilar, chasing things still as I was then. But the major difference, frankly, is purely the financial one. It's that sense of security that you have from being a part of something guaranteed to the insecurity of now I've got to chase everything. It's Basically, it's all down to me now. That's the biggest challenge that I faced coming out of one thing and going into the other. That remains the case now. Probably freelancers who've been doing it a long time will tell me that will always be the case. When it comes to positives, then conversely, now you have a raft of sort of different and varied clients. Has that given you more creativity and stimulus in a way that you weren't getting at Sky? Yes, it has. It's funny because it wasn't my decision to leave Sky, but I had thought about it many, many times previously and thought, I'm actually, I could do with it um, a new challenge here. I love doing the Soccer Saturday bit. The Wales bit had culminated in something successful, so we'd done the journey there in a sense. And then I could see that the industry was changing anyway, and it's changed dramatically, by the way. I could see that change happening. So I was already casting my mind. For many, many years, whilst I was working at Sky, I was also doing coach education work for the FA of Wales. And I was doing that for two reasons. One, I really enjoy it. The other was, uh, well, three. The other was really useful because I'm meeting a lot of coaches while I do it. So building a network and contacts and stuff. And the third reason was I had half an eye on what lay outside of Sky. So at some point I might need to do other stuff. So that has proved very, very useful since because the educational element of what I do now is becoming increasingly important and the broadcast bit becoming a little less important. But also to pick up on the other point you made, what it has been good for, I've had to be really flexible and I've got to be really on my toes to seek and or even create opportunity and to get in there because it's not easy it isn't easy now the industry as I say has changed a lot I thought naively I thought I'd walk out of sky with nearly 30 years at that point experience in the sports broadcast industry and the phone would just keep ringing or the emails would keep coming in that didn't happen nothing really nobody I had to go and find it And that challenge of going out and finding stuff has certainly kept me on my toes. Yeah, definitely. And I've ended up doing some stuff that I've I've been as happy and as proud of. I don't use that word often, but as proud of as anything I've done in my career since leaving because the challenge has all been mine. So creating match stream production for various clubs in Wales. And the first game that we did is I produced the match stream and we did a Champions League game as our first ever game. That was all down to me. If it went wrong, it was all down to me. If the coverage went wrong, it was all down to me. And I'd never really been in that position before. There was always usually somebody else you could apportion some of the blame to at least. But in this instance, it was all down to me. So you then find yourself in a very different situation in terms of the pressure that's on you. And that's been good, actually. That's been good because it's pushed me harder. And I'm still at the stage where I want to keep doing stuff. haven't finished with that concept. So it's been good from that. You said something also quite interesting to me off air. You said that obviously most people would give their right arm to do what you do. Sports journalism is a very competitive field. You look at the likes of the YouTubers coming up now and, and that even that field's getting pretty congested now, even with the YouTubers who have got hundreds of thousands of followers. However, because of all that, do you feel like sometimes you may invalidate yourself when you do have complaints about the industry like anyone would do about their profession? Yeah, I think you do get to a point at some stage where it does feel like a job. And people would probably get a little bit, you know, sniffy if I said that because they say, yeah, but it isn't, is it? 
But, you know, you get home late at night, you've done a long day and already the calls are coming in about what you needed to do the next day and you might need to be up early or on the road early and you're off or somebody might have a go at you about some stuff that you've done today and you've got to sort that out. And there are times at that point when it can feel like a job. What you have to do with what I do is you have to commit to it. You can't do it any other way than committing to it because the expectation is that you're doing the thing you love so you've got to be absolutely 100% invested in it and that doesn't give much wriggle room in a sense in terms of yeah but I want to do something else because I think the attitude of many people in the industry then and probably still is is that you're very lucky to have this job and they use that to say, well, if you don't want to do this, there, someone got, else will. I've got yeah. thousands of other people here whose CBs are on my desk who will do it. And that is used as a pressure to apply. If you say no, they'll say, well, okay, well, I'll get somebody else to do it then. And you know the inference of that. It's difficult to say no because this is, you're doing the thing that everybody else would like to do. So that give my right arm thing, that's where that becomes occasionally tricky because you know that you're aware of that people actually almost tell you that but it means you've got to go yeah okay i'll do it mm. so those are the moments but i mean you know equally equally i don't want to be appear churlish about this because equally at other times i find myself standing in places and going wow how did i end up here you know this is incredible on the pitch you know at wembley or whatever interviewing people how did this happen so you have to balance it but there are times anybody will tell you in in the football broadcast industry there are moments when it it can feel like a job before we talk about industry issues you've mentioned it early in the pod but i want to briefly talk about the two books you've written as an author so zombie nation awakes and don't take me home so how big an achievement were they for you and your professional self-worth and your mental health especially given the very emotive and personal subject matter from a sporting sense i enjoyed the process immensely i'd always fancied writing a book i'd started a wales diary countless times because i had this idea in my head that wales had waited so long to qualify for anything that the time that they finally did it it would be a hell of a story to be able to tell so i started the diary numerous times and then every time wales got two or three games into the group much like they have done with this one and they'd lost a couple of games and it was quite clear they weren't going to qualify so the process seemed a bit pointless because there was no point going to a sad ending particularly not one that you were already predicting sort of three matches <laughs> into a 10 game qualification campaign so i stopped and then kept starting again and then we finally got to the 2014 campaign and i started again I got a sense three games in that actually it could happen this time. And so at that point, started to do it a bit more seriously and then got in touch with a publisher who was very interested. And then so once he expressed an interest, I was invested in that one then and, and we saw it through. And the next book kind of followed on from the first because the first one is from the perspective really of being a reporter. And the second one is from the perspective absolutely of being a supporter. And I made a conscious decision not to go and work at Euro 2016 I booked holiday the minute Wales qualified for Euro 2016 I booked annual leave from Sky to make sure that those two as it turned out nearly a month but certainly the opening two weeks of the tournament I was not on the books at Sky because I wanted to go as a fan that was my whole concept for doing that's how I wanted to do it and then saw the opportunity off the back of that to write a book about it as well the process was I just enjoyed the process I enjoyed the process quite stressful when you get to the end of publishing, when you, you get close to publishing it, 
and there's no money in it, by the way. You don't. It, it's a like it's mental a, health, Bryn. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, you do it because you enjoy it. You get to the end of it, and you've invested loads of time in it, and and you realise actually you don't make much money from this, like so much else these days, unfortunately. But I still like to look at the two books on the bookshelf because I did those, and and it was different from the other stuff that I'd done. And my dad was a very literary man, and I know, well, he was still alive when I wrote them, so I was able to give him a copy of the two books, and he'd never managed to get anything at that stage. He'd never had anything published. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. It was good. When it comes to industry issues, the first we're going to discuss is social media, because you have quite a unique perspective on it, having done a lot of media training to young footballers and coaches. So how do you manage it yourself, and then how do you impart that wisdom and knowledge onto very impressionable young men in the case of the former? It's one of the things that I get the most out of currently in the the portfolio of stuff I I do, because as I said, I think what we all find these days is as the hair turns colour, and mine's been this colour for a long time now, and as you get older, I think the way that the industry is moving now, they're less interested in having me on screen. They're more interested perhaps in people tapping into the experience that I've gained over the years. I kind of understand that. It's a bit disappointing because... I still think I can do the broadcasty bit, but there's less opportunity currently to do that. But people are keen to have some sort of, to let you share their experience, your experience with them. So the social media bit with the young players, I enjoy doing because I've been in an industry in which there was no social media when I began. And social media has evolved through the course of what I've been doing. I've had a public platform anyway that whole time. And that's actually the significant bit. So people, not many people, but some people would know who I am because of what I do, which isn't the case with most people, you know, in life. So I'm slightly different to people on that basis because I've had a public platform. So the addition to the public platform from working on TV was the bit about how do you then... Sky, for instance, wanted us all to be involved in using social media because it helped promote their product. And that's what social media is. It's a promotional tool, frankly. So I worked out that what I was promoting was me. As much as it was their product, it was also me. And I've used it as a, as a promotional tool, frankly, ever since. I mean, there are different ways to use it on that basis. But what I did work out quite quickly, very quickly, actually, was that it could be a negative platform as well. If I got things wrong, there were people watching. And the people who were watching might be looking for an excuse. And so I became aware of the way that I needed to use this most successfully to ensure that basically I didn't get myself sacked for doing stuff on it. It was as straightforward as that. And that knowledge, actually, although it seems quite straightforward, is one of the things that I think has eluded a lot of people, is that you've got to be really careful with this stuff because this is you on a public platform putting yourself out there and people making very, very clear judgments about the type of person you are on the basis of the stuff that you're sharing with them. And that's the bit that they don't seem to teach in schools. I say this and people, so I'm sure they do, but I don't get any sense that they teach this in schools and they ought to. It should be a GCSE, social media use, because it's so important. You know, I could I could reel off a, a 50 examples of people getting it wrong and it happens every week. So because I've had to use the platform to promote positively and to make sure that I don't end up getting cancelled because of stuff I've said or things I've done, that's the line that any young footballer is also treading because they are also they're on the public platform. People are way more aware of them than they are of everybody else in, in their circle, social circle perhaps, because of who they are and what they do and who they're associated with. They have to be aware of that all the time. And it's a heavy pressure on Mm. young people. 
It's a hugely heavy pressure on young people. I don't envy them that, I'll be honest. But if they can get it right and they don't have to worry about the social media aspect of it, then it's one bit that we've succeeded in. I feel like I'm on a bit of a missionary work with this in many ways because I still see the mistakes being made, which tells me that people are still not being educated in the right way about how to do this most successfully. I'm not saying I'm any kind of social media marketing genius. I'm not. I found my own way through this, but I found a way that, that I think works on a fairly practical level and that I think I can share that experience of trying not to get it wrong with all the people that I talk to, coaches as well, not just young people. The older people make huge mistakes as well. And I still go into sessions, coach education sessions with a room full of experienced people because I always do kind of a search through their social media history. And I'll often, very, very often, usually have examples of bad practice that I can take into the room with me from those in the room. So everybody's making the mistakes. So the ability to help a little is something that I enjoy. Yeah, apart from Neil Warnock's social media team, but I am biased considering he is manager of Huddersfield Town. <laughs> well, yeah, the fact that Neil Warnock's on social media or somebody representing Neil Warnock's on social media kind of tells you where we're at in many ways. Because uh, I remember him announcing his appearance on Twitter, well, I don't know what, year or 18 months or so ago. You know, so he'd seen, or people around him had, had advised, and he'd seen the benefit potentially. There is a massive benefit from it. As a promotional vehicle, social media can be fantastic. And very, very useful. It's been useful to me, no question about it. There are things that I do have done on social media that have been extremely beneficial to me in terms of what I do. So if you get it right, it can really help. If you get it wrong, it can finish your career. It's that, mm. that straightforward. When it comes to that then, how do you teach that balance? Because a lot of the time, I think people, well, a major complaint of people having about footballers is that they're quite robotic. The social media channels are generally run by their management or PR companies. And that's due to the fear. You know, they'll often have a private account as well. But the flip side to that is that anything less than banal is seized upon by online football culture. You know, football Twitter is a pretty toxic place at the best of times. So how do you teach them to strike that balance between having a personality, which people want, and not cancelling themselves because fans are pretty fickle you know fans will often say they want players to have an opinion and when they do have an opinion they just shout them down for it yeah, Troy Deeney's a big example <laughs> well it, it, it is really difficult I, I mean, I, there are no easy answers to this so I think what I advise that people do is to create an image around themselves that people are going to like basically what you put out on the, on your platforms is going to let people know that you're a nice person I don't think you can do much more than that so unfortunately, what that does mean, fortunately or unfortunately, is that you present only in a positive manner. And again, if you sat down and think everything that I put on social media is going to be positive, then actually, genuinely, as a relatively straightforward rule, that should work for you. The moments when things start to get trickier, when the negatives intrude upon that. Now, if you introduce that yourself, if you, for instance, if you take on the people who come after you, and they do come after you on social media in a way that gives other people ammunition and that becomes a problem that then grows if you ignore them then people will you know some people might accuse you of just kind of rolling over in effect but actually i think the advice generally speaking is actually unfortunately that's probably the best way unless you've got a fantastically pithy kind of answer to something that you know that works well i remember conor hurahan kept a tweet that get one guy said on social media you'll never play in the premier league and he waited until he played his first Premier League game, and then he he sent the guy the picture again of the of the tweet he put out there. Now that's clever because he he just he'd stored that, and he probably used it as a motivation. Didn't get into a big fight at the time, 
he just waited and then he had his moment and there's no comeback from that kind of thing it's tricky so the positivity is the key bit the building some sort of sense about uh, the, the one of the issues i have with a lot of young players i look through a lot of like really sort of 15 16 year old footballers when we're working with them we'll go through and see their stuff and see what they're doing because they're all doing stuff at that point and they get frightened usually i think we use the word fear they get frightened of doing anything out of their of stepping out of their lane so that means you get training shots, you'll get a little bit post-match stuff about great day today, good win. Thank da, da, da. the fans, yeah, good win, yeah, exactly. move on to the next yeah. one. Yeah. We go again, you know, the stock phrases that have appeared in social media now. But what you don't see, and occasionally the other thing you see a lot of is players on holiday. So in the summer, they'll be them wearing their fancy trainers and their nice gear in front of somewhere exotic or by the edge of a pool or whatever. But just a picture, nothing more than that. So I'm saying to the guys, I'd like to get a bit more sense of who you are and I'd like to know a bit more about what you do in between the training sessions. So are you learning a foreign language? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you have a pet? Do you work with charity at any point? What about the community schemes that the club may get you involved with? I'd quite like to see those aspects of who you are and what you do because that gives me a sense of you being a nice person perhaps or an interesting person. So that's the bit. And that's quite difficult to do. To get that right is quite difficult. And that's mm. where the players need help and guidance. You know, they do. They need mentors in, in, in these areas now. It's so complicated. I want to move on to the next issue, which is social class. Now, you come from proud working class roots with your grandparents and your parents were middle class. So as a Welshman, you went to a, a rough state comp. You went to a rough state <laughs> comp like me. Not I'm not saying that all schools in Wales are rough state comps, but you went to you went to a state comp. But the fact that the industry is disproportionately made up of privately educated people, I mean that's a fact. You can go and look up yeah. any any stats in the UK. How did you navigate that going into it? And did you find any snobbery or accentism in places? Possibly, yeah, but uh, we'll come to that in a moment. It's a bit more of a challenge because I went to, I, I think I described it as rough, but maybe tough would be a better word. Okay. Uh, one letter different. It was a tough comprehensive and you had to kind of, you know, I was doing stuff like, uh, I was playing football, but I was also playing musical instruments and, and acting in, in school plays and, and reading poetry on stage which were things that immediately put a big flag above your head saying, we've got to write one here. I got some grief off the back of that. It didn't help that my mum taught at the school as well, which is why I have to be careful of the description of the school. But the act of coming through all that was very, very useful to me because I came through a tougher individual because it was a tough school. You had to be tough to get through it. You had to be, in a sense, tougher still to get through it and still do the things you wanted to do. And I got loads out of it, by the way. Fantastic time in, in school, ultimately. Got so much from it. And I'm so grateful to the people who were involved in that, in that educational process because they gave me so many opportunities. And so it was very, very important in sort of setting me on the path that I wanted to follow. I've already mentioned I was doing a talking newspaper for the blind at the school, which was a great initiative. They set up and I threw myself into that. And so they gave me opportunity, they gave me chances to do the things I wanted and needed to do to get to the place I wanted to be. So they did really, really well, got good A-level grades, got off to a university that I wanted to go to. So all that was was fantastic. I realized that things were different when I got to university, when I was doing drama and there was me in the room. There were only three blokes on the drama course anyway, combined drama course. And I was in very first session, there was me in the room with about 24, 25 what already, I guess, were very posh women who were the other people on the course and me in my tracky bottoms and trainers 
dressed like a bit of a scally from Wrexham. And they were all called, I don't know, Tabitha and Samantha and names that I'd never really encountered previously. So at that point, that was an eye-opener. And university, I was thrown into a completely different social environment at university. But I had my mates there. The football team was the place that we all rallied. The people with accents all rallied around the football team. So we had Geordies and we had lads from Cardiff and we had Scousers. And that's where we all hung out kind of thing. That football club provided the environment for us. And had a brilliant time at uni. I met some very posh people, some really good people, and and it was just it was a it was it was good. It was a good education. And then went into an industry initially that was much like the BBC local radio and the commercial radio station I worked at. I recognised the people in, in those environments. By and large, there were, there were some exceptions at the beep. They were mainly like the people I'd met before or the people I'd met at university. And actually, I didn't handle that bit very well. In a workplace environment, at uni, I could ignore people. In the workplace environment, I couldn't because I was working with them. And I wasn't very good at that. And possibly still aren't, still not to this day. At Sky, slightly different at Sky because I was never in the office because I worked from home. But the conversations on the on the phone could be difficult. I was accused in one meeting of being a grumpy northerner, which is a phrase that sticks with me to this day because I don't really consider myself a northerner although I have lived in the north forever but grumpy yeah that's probably fair fair comment but this concept that I was this kind of grumpy northerner I think probably was was one that I didn't particularly successfully shed whilst I was at Sky in that initial period anyway so that could be tricky because I had a sense that I was talking to people who'd come a very different way into this than the route that I'd followed and my sense was perhaps that they'd had it much easier than I had. Whether that was true or not, I don't know, because I never really went into it. But that was my sense, at least. I'm not very good at that bit. That's one thing that I've never really handled particularly well. So it did mm. did present some problems, definitely, yeah. You spoke about working from home there. And I want to talk about work-life balance now, because when it comes to doing this in the football industry, and especially football journalism, sports journalism, I've discussed this with Huddersfield Town journalist Stephen Chicken and David Hartrick, and the idea that your life is basically dictated by the football season. So school holidays, Easter, Christmas, even birthdays can be impacted. What has that challenge been like for your mental health? And did it ever become normalised? And is it a good thing to become normalised or bad? (laughs) No, it's not a good thing. And I have one clear example of how this impacts. And that is that when I got the gig as the Wales football correspondent, which I was really happy and excited about, my daughter's birthday is in early September. I have two children and my first son, my young eldest daughter, I should say, her birthday is in early September. And that means that it's always in International Week. And as soon as I got the Wales job, that took me away from home every single time she had a birthday. On her fifth birthday, was it? I was in Azerbaijan, in Baku. And then from that point on till I think it was 21, I don't think I was at home for a birthday. And that is difficult because you know I should be and I wasn't and so she knows it and I know it and we joke about it but you only get one go at this you weren't tempted to take her with you (laughs) (laughs) just you know she was in school so and when it also coincided so what I also missed was going to first day at school and then first day at new big school and then I actually was around to take her to university so it impacted massively on, on that basis as a general rule, the big problem with it became that football clash with the sort of life calendar is in holidays, as you've mentioned. I would take June off at the end of the football season 
and that would be my downtime and then things would start picking up again and obviously first weekend in august i'd be looking to start the new season again but first weekend in august is effectively the second weekend usually the school holiday so unless we'd crammed a holiday in particularly schools got more and more sort of strict about not taking students out unless we crammed a week managed to cram a week in that very very first week of the school holiday when prices were at their premium level then it got tricky so holidays were always like they were always kind of hemmed in between the end of my period down period and the pickup period for me and the end of the school term and my wife still teaches in a school now so I still have that issue now you know we're squeezing a week in here in the next few weeks because Lee's got relegated straight away I'm thinking well I know what that means that means the season starts a week earlier than the Premier League season starts there's the impact you know straight away you see something like that there's all sorts of other implications to Lee's getting relegated but one of them is I've got one less week's opportunity to try and get a family holiday in now than I would have had had they stayed up and that's every year it's like that every year I remember booking into a restaurant my daughter my youngest daughter her birthday's in January it was a Tuesday birthday so I had a night match that I was meant to be covering in Chesterfield so we booked a table in the hotel for daft early like four o'clock or half past four so that we could have a birthday meal and then I would race off to go and cover the game so we went into the restaurant never forget it we're the only people in the restaurant because it's so early the four of us sitting around the table, there's nobody else in there at all. So it's a bizarre atmosphere. So the food gets served and then we'd organise a cake and the cake comes out. And then I get a call midway through the meal to say, oh, we need you there earlier. And then I'm now sort of, I can't, I don't want to leave too early because that's going to ruin the thing even more. But they're now telling me I've got to go. And I didn't leave early enough. I didn't get to Chesterfield early enough from the perspective of what I was being asked to do. And so the next day I got a, a bollocking on, on that basis. So it is a problem. It is something that you constantly try and balance. Even worse for those in the football, actually in the football industry. I have huge sympathy for those like members of the coaches. The players get fantastically rewarded at most levels. So that's the payback. Still hard, mentally still hard to miss birthdays, to be away from your children growing up. Lots of players struggle with it still, but there is a financial reward for doing it. But think of all the ancillary staff who get drawn into things, the coaches, the physios, the masseurs. And I've talked to a physio recently who said the thing that forced him out of the game, frankly, was that he would set up, I'll be home on Sunday, everyone. He wasn't living particularly close to his family because people don't tend to move now. They stay in one place because the job situation is so insecure. So he'd moved away from the family, but he said, I'll be back on Sunday, we'll go and do this. As a family, we'll go and do this thing. And then on the Saturday evening, you would get a call from somebody at the club to say, listen, Star Strikers pulled a hamstring, we need you in tomorrow morning to give him treatment ahead of the game on Tuesday. And all the plans that you've made, you've got to go back to the family then and say, I'm sorry, we can't do that thing now. That's a bad place. That's a bad feeling. Because you know, people might say to your face, okay, fair enough, understand. But you know, this kind of potential for sort of that level of resentment there it's hard you spoke there about Leeds getting relegated and this brings us nicely on to our final topic you wanted to discuss which is the idea of how football becomes reality and the consequences of that of the lives of people like you in the industry Bryn and now when we chatted about Leeds off air and I, I joked that I couldn't confirm or deny that I'd, I'd be happy if they got relegated and you actually pulled me up on it and said well you know for a fan like yourself and you were completely right in saying this it's just the drama of football but for you you know, relegation like that could have real consequences on your livelihood, for example, and, and even shape how your outlook is dictated by the cut and thrust of football. Just tell me how that impacts your mental health. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, big decisions get made on the basis of the success and failure of those blokes running around on that green thing. And there are two major elements in my life, throughout my working life, that have impacted completely out of my control. TV contracts is one, broadcast contracts is one. So, for instance, I was the Sky women's football commentator for a number of years. Just as the game was beginning to grow and the FA were putting a lot of effort into making the the women's game bigger. And you could see it happening and I enjoyed doing the the women's game. So this isn't the first wave that that we're seeing now. This is the second wave, actually, and I was involved in that first wave. But then Sky either lost or decided not to renew the contract. So that thing that I was doing quite regularly disappeared. So I wasn't doing it anymore. Now, luckily, it wasn't my only thing. Had it been my only thing, and that happens to people, you know, commentators are working for a company who do loads of games in one particular competition, and then they haven't got the competition anymore, and it goes to another company, and that commentator isn't working for them anymore. So that regular income he'd had from that one role doesn't exist now. That's stressful. And then the other stressful bit is the fact that you're potentially what happens to you is impacted by what the performance of the players. And that is more the case, actually, really. It did happen at Sky because I had a, say I had 10 or more clubs in my patch. But two or three times in the midst of that, I had no Premier League clubs because all the clubs had got themselves relegated. So I was, you know, across the Pennines, the guys in the Northwest office were doing Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Everton, etc., etc. So not just Premier League, but top-end Premier League clubs winning stuff. So their work pattern is dictated by that. There's loads for them to do. There's huge interest in it. My work pattern, what have I got to offer every week? I've got a mid-table championship club. is my highest-placed club of all my clubs here. So unless I'm coming up with something sensational that's happening currently at Sheffield Wednesday or whatever, actually, even if it is, and I ring up and I say, I've got this thing, they'll go, yeah, not really interested in that. Can you go over and do, or can you go up to Newcastle and do something up there? So the things that are happening on my patch where I'm meant to be in charge, nobody's really interested in that anymore. So I'm having to travel. And then you lose control because you go into someone else's patch and you're doing stuff with other clubs that you don't usually work with. That impacted whilst I was there. But then when you work in club media then it gets even more to the fore because you're now part of the club. And so the things that happen to the club and the impact that they have, then also I potentially feel that as well. That's why I mentioned right at the outset the roller coaster bit because for the last four years, I saw Leeds get promoted and then I've seen Leeds do three years in the Premier League and now I've seen them get relegated as well. So we've gone up and we've steadily come back down again. And, you know, as I sit here now, I don't know what, hopefully there will be no impact from that. But I don't know that at the moment. So there's a, a level of uncertainty because I don't actually, I work on a freelance basis. So I'm not a member of staff or anything at Leeds United. So people will make changes and you are waiting for those things to happen all the time. You don't know. So there, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. Thank God I don't, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, thank God I don't have to go and get a mortgage now. But if I yeah, did... Yeah, I don't have that luxury, well, unfortunately. Well, no, <laughs> you guys... Uh, you guys have really been hit hard with all that stuff. But if I was currently going to have to go and get a mortgage, I'm not quite sure how to explain the bit where they say, go on then, you know, where, where's your, where are your guaranteed income streams? Because that might be a tricky conversation. Let's reflect now on this 30-year journalism journey, Bryn. What has it taught you about yourself? <laughs> Blimey. I, it, uh, I think it's taught me that I'm pretty resilient and I've had to be at times. But also, I think the major thing it's taught me is that I think it is very important to do something. It's dead easy to say this, much harder to do, by the way. I realise that. But it's important to try and find something to do that you invest in. 
because for all the bad stuff that has been some for all the bad stuff for some of the bad stuff that I've there's been along the way and everybody in any job in 30 years will get bad stuff an absolute given there'll be good times and there'll be bad times but because I'm still invested absolutely invested in the thing I do because I still love football despite all the stuff I've seen and all the rest of it because I still have that fundamental attachment to the thing I do I still get something out of it and that's kept me kind of energized and in a sense young so I think I've devoted myself to it completely probably at times to the detriment of other things around me but ultimately I've done it because I thought that was the best way to do it and probably that's probably actually right We've talked all about Bryn, the sports journalist, presenter, producer. Now I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Bryn. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Tell me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Bryn we meet here? Do you know what? I'll be really interested in the, in the different ways that people react to this one because I was having a conversation with my daughter yesterday over a couple of drinks. She's back from university and we were enjoying some time together. And I was talking about doing this and I was talking about mental health and I was talking about the Gary Speed thing that I've talked about in other places when I when I had to report on Gary's death and the fact that that still has an, an impact and appears to have a resonance now, which had been proved quite graphically to me quite recently when a young guy came up and sort of talked to me about it in a very honest manner about his own mental health problems and he gave me a hug at the end of it all and, and, and this kind of thing. I was reminded about how significant these conversations are nowadays. But at the same time, as I mentioned to my daughter, we didn't really do any of this stuff back in the day. So if you were talking about kind of my mental health journey, I don't really have any marker points as particularly dramatic marker points on it because these conversations are pretty new. I mean, we knew, you know, people got depressed and, and all the rest. Well, mm. nothing has changed really, probably. Maybe the pressures are greater now than they were back then. In fact, definitely they are because of the social media, I think, bit adds a lot to that. But we didn't really kind of, identify these things as being stuff back in the day. I mean, effectively, and without wanting to trivialise it, we were either kind of sad or we were happy. And there were people who were mainly sad or angry. Uh, angry was a big one when I was growing up. And there were other people who just kind of seemed quite happy. And you did the things that made you happy and you tried to avoid the things that made you sad. And it, and it all seemed... It wasn't idyllic by any stretch of the imagination, but it did seem quite straightforward and quite simple back then. And so I can remember times probably when I was, as I would describe it, sort of sad. And there were pressures at school from things like there were elements of bullying that I, that I suffered at mm -hmm. school. But we just kind of, like I said earlier, not everybody coped. And, you know, understandably, bullying is not a new thing. The nature of it has changed. Now, it's a technological exercise in many cases now, but bullying has not changed. That's always been there. I was bullied, but I also bullied as well because that's what happens. You find your own victims in those circumstances. You get it from somebody, you pass it on to somebody else kind of thing. So that was happening a lot. It was quite violent. You know, at school, people sorted stuff out with a fight. Elements have been added to that, which make all that far more problematic now because nobody ever really got stabbed or anything like that. So that's a bit now that I would... 
you know, I'd be far more nervous about if I was at the same stage of my life now. But we just kind of got on with it. We just kind of walked through it and saw how it went. I was lucky because I had a great background, you know, great parental background. We lived in a nice house. The village was a good village. There were some good people there. And I did some of the right things. You know, I was I was drinking in the pub. These were the different challenges then. I was drinking in the pub at probably the age of 14 or 15 in those days because to gain acceptance, to be a part of a different crowd, for me to be able to stand up there and read poetry and play an instrument and act on stage in school or beyond school, I also needed to play football and I needed to go to the mm. pub and I needed to... I used to wear all the stuff to go to the match. I was big into the fashion, the trainers, when we started wearing all the designer gear. and all that. You need that shield. Yeah. yeah, that was the defence mechanism in a sense for me because I confused people. On yeah. one hand, I was doing what would have been described at the time perhaps as the sissy stuff, different context in those days. And on the other hand, I was doing the stuff that blokes did. So I presented both sides. So maybe if I sit now and talk through it, that was kind of to an element. That's an element of the mental health challenge there. But yeah. If I'd done one more than the other, I wouldn't have been true to myself, but also I would have invited whichever pressure came from whichever side, you know, in terms mm. of I'm not actually behaving in the way I wanted to behave. But actually mm. the combination of the way I put it together, I think worked quite well. Yeah, Michael Sheen, the actor, talked about this and how he was really good at football but also loved acting. So when he started doing the acting, no one could chat to him because he was really good at football and he was in the team. So he had that guard, that shield of armour, basically, yeah. from bullying. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah it's really, it's really And I remember clearly one instance. The school did a musical for the very first time, like a rock musical, thing called The Dracula Spectacular. I had a part in that. And I'd got grief off a group of older students at the school quite regularly up until the point in which they came to see that. And I remember walking past them afterwards, always that sense of trepidation is what, what comment am I going to get here one of went oh I saw you in that thing last night it was brilliant there's the moment there's the flip moment all that to go back to the value of that education the value was in moments like that in realising that I could do the things I wanted to do on both sides I could do the football bit but I could do the acting bit mm. well and that made life much better when all that started happening we're going to come back to men's mental health in a second but I want to talk about something very positive and something I can't not talk about with you Bryn as a Wales man which is the rise and rise of Wrexham <laughs> and we have to talk about Wrexham AFC on this podcast so you are a big Wrexham fan yep. and when I initially saw Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney were buying the club I, I genuinely thought like the matrix was about to break like it just seemed so surreal that it almost wasn't actually real at all just tell me about these last two roller coaster seasons as a fan the highs that the very high highs i should say and some of the lows well it's been mad i mean it's still mad now it still doesn't all it doesn't make a massive amount of sense in many ways now but we are perhaps we're beginning to come to terms with it we don't really ever want to come to terms with it frankly we want to keep <laughs> living like we are currently it's been i mean it's been brilliant because I have invested a lot emotionally in that football club. Way, way, way too much in that football club down the years. First game I watched was in 1979. And that's been a significant part of my journey as well because I'd moved from Liverpool and I was a Liverpool fan and I was, what was I, nine years old. And I was devastated to leave all my friends in Liverpool behind. Didn't want to move to North Wales. And then my mum and dad took me to a Wrexham game the first weekend we were there as an element in saying, don't worry, there's football here. And I was going, yeah, but second division. Imagine that, second division. <laughs> and me moaning about it. So they did that conscious effort to settle me into this move. Me and my brother went to the game with them. Blackburn Rovers at home, March 10th, 1979. So that was the beginning of that of a change for me. And so I became invested in that from that point onwards, frankly. 
and dive deeper and deeper into it to the point that when the fans group took over at Wrexham, I was involved with the, the Supporters Trust and had the role of president of the Supporters Trust for a while and found myself getting even deeper and deeper into it, then began to find myself suffering some of the bits that people who run football clubs suffer, whereby it does become more than just the thing you turn up to and enjoy on a Saturday afternoon. You start to get become aware of how the sums do or don't add up, and that becomes a pressure. And it became a pressure in that position for me. In the end, I looked what I saw didn't really encourage me to think we were going in the right direction, so I just I stepped away. I stepped down from the post of president then it's all this stuff starts getting a bit more serious it's a bit less like fun that's what was happening with Wrexham for me we'd been through a couple of stages like this previously with bad owners but I was doing it because I did it I wasn't doing it because I enjoy I was enjoying doing it anymore like going to watch them and, and it's a 200 mile round trip for me to go and watch them if they're playing at home so I was actually investing money in it as well just paying for fuel and stuff but then these guys came along and they just changed everything because all of a sudden we had energy, we had momentum. Of course we had money, but there's more to it than that because you've got to spend it right. And it's not just mm -hmm. about the messaging and all the rest of it as well. And then it became fun again. And bar Grimsby at home in the playoffs, the game we managed to contrive to lose 5-4 at home. And even that was a proper crazy day, you know, and you'd seen a good game of football even if the result hadn't been right and I was at the Dover game when we came back from 5-2 down to win what was it 6-5 or whatever it was with four goals in the last 15 minutes that was an absolute mad day so we've had some good 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 days and they're good people and I've been lucky enough to meet them and get a sense of what they're about and where they're at and I like them a lot and so I'm very positive about what's happening at the football club now and I'm really enjoying the whole the whole thing, in a way, probably, actually. And I've seen some good teams at Wrexham. I've seen us play at second division level. But I'm probably enjoying it now more than I ever have done previously. We're going to come back to men's mental health now because obviously you spoke there about Gary Speed. You've talked about that in many other podcasts. We're not going to dive into that again. But what you have become more aware of in the last few years, you're a dad, you're a dad of two children, but you also know a lot of other dads who've lost sons, especially to suicide. How has that impacted your mental health just seeing and listening to those just indescribable stories of pain oh man i mean as a statistic it, it's it's terrifying for me that there are four people in my sort of not all in my immediate circle but three dads i've had conversations with about this the other dad i, I used to work with i haven't spoken to him about it but three dads i've had this conversation with and that in itself is ridiculous you know just they are the hardest Oh, man, they're the hardest conversations. And, I mean, I'm saying that, you know, it, it's actually easy for me to say that. It's difficult for, um, it's really difficult to explain, as you can probably tell. But what it has given me a huge awareness of is how prolific this problem is. I mean, if there can be three, four people that, that I know who've been impacted losing sons at relatively young ages... And Gary was the, the oldest at 42. If they can all lose sons like this, then I know this thing is all over the place. And actually, when you have conversations with people, I talked to my daughter about this again yesterday. And she said, oh, yeah, friend at university, uh, his uncle killed himself. When you start having the conversation, immediately people say, oh, yeah, I know X, did a, a, you know, a friend's brother. Or everybody seems to know somebody. Now, what that says to me, what that's opened my eyes to, is how big a problem this is. And what frustrates me in this conversation is that 
how little we actually seem to be doing about it in many ways. When this many people are doing this thing, why are we not pouring huge sums of money into trying to work out why they're doing it and stopping it happening? You know, why is it a charity-driven exercise? Why is this not one of the biggest health issues? Take away the word mental health. Just have the health issues. Why is this something that we are not pushing front and centre to try and tackle? And that's the bit I don't get. And I, and I, you know, I fear probably having this conversation with more parents in future potentially because you know that life is tough at the moment and there's no two ways about it for you guys in particular younger people very very hard and so we need to look at this thing very very much greater detail if that's the right phrase than we are currently otherwise we'll keep having the conversation and not enough people are listening and as I say often on this podcast Bryn there's not enough people listening to men I think men are talking now it's a very different place from when I started vent in 2017 I was a diversity when I came into the mental health space back then but now we've got a lot of men talking and there's a lot of men who won't talk but will feel helped by men who who are talking but are we listening that's the uh, that's the main issue I think yeah I've done quite a lot with Andy's Andy's man club who who are doing great work I think in trying to get this thing going that's why I say it's kind of it's driven by individuals this is you know I know the Mm. guys who set up Andy's man club and they're pushing hard but who's helping them do this you know, where's the assistance? For it? it shouldn't be coming from the individual, this, you know, the, the state, if you like, if that's the right phrase, should be, should be involved with this because it's so big. And the mental well-being of your young people is absolutely vital to the, the general success and well-being of, of the nation because you guys are the, the, you're the driving force now. Now, that isn't to say that people at my age are not suffering suffering problems as well, but the further you get down the line, the probably the, the, the more you've kind of created a place for yourself I suspect that would be in my instance for sure you feel a little bit more confident at the way that you're going to deal with stuff and your ability to deal with stuff but the the people we need to be helping massively are the are the younger people who are confronting this often alone and the moment that really kind of haunts me in terms of Gary is that moment when he decided this is what I'm going to do I can't even contemplate what place he was in in that particular moment. A guy who's, you know, successful career, loads of friends, wife, two brilliant kids who he adored. What is that moment like? That moment, you know, and that's what we've got to examine. What is that moment and how do we stop people getting to that place? We're going to finish on two additional things that you sent over to me after we chatted off air, Bryn. And the first was the impact of the COVID-19 lockdowns on your mental health. So, on the one hand, you've been working from home for many years, so you you were used to that adap- yeah. adaptation, which everyone became ad- adapted to. However, you said it was still pretty scary because of the job you were in and how precarious the, the industry is. So how did that global hard stop affect your mental health? <laughs> well, it comes back to CLF, <laughs> but that's probably a, a defence mechanism because it comes back to the biggest mental health challenge that many men face is how do I provide for this little unit that I've created here one of the biggest certainly in my experience because you become aware of the pressure of responsibility that as you as you you know basically as you have children and as you create a, you become an economic unit and you are responsible for that I am in this instance uh, as the major breadwinner I become responsible in my own mind for that economic unit and I've got to look after everybody and the ability or inability of me to do that is kind of a plank in terms of where I'm at in terms of mental health, perhaps. 
And so that's the challenge that freelancing presented, as I mentioned right at the outset, where you go from your salaries in there at the end of every month to how much can I put in there this month and I've got no work coming up in the next few weeks. Well, that was what lockdown became because mm. I was I was literally, I, I went into an academy at a football club and I did a session with the young players there, media session with the young players there. And I finished that session. I was aware of something going on behind the scenes as I was, even as I was there. And they announced that they were closing the academy. Basically, I was the last person to go into the academy from outside. And they closed the academy as I left the building that day. They shut down. And that was the next day, I think, the actual lockdown was announced. And so I knew that I wasn't going to go back into any academies anytime soon. And then all football fixtures were cancelled. So there's two elements of the thing that I was doing at that stage, which were now not happening anymore. So the two major... Th- parts of my job as it was as a freelance now had now immediately disappeared that's <laughs> that's when you start thinking how's this going to work out now how am I going to do this because I had no idea whether anything was going to resume or not or when or whether and so I had nothing at that point I had no work at that point and I had almost no work for the first three months was it of lockdown and little bits came in and I actually did some stuff of my own back because I don't sit still in these instances I try and tackle them so I set up a little merchandising sideline business and sort of threw myself at that I, I did some well, self-help's the wrong phrase but um, some educational promo video things which are on YouTube to help people in terms of the way they communication skills put myself into that with the assistance of a a pal who was very helpful at the time but I wasn't actually really earning any money and that was a real pressure because nobody knew what was going to happen my industry shut down and I didn't know when my industry was going to open up again thankfully it did but from that point almost I mean what was really frustrating more than frustrating really was that at the point at which all this happened I was exactly one year into freelancing and I had just for the first time in that year, which had been nervy period for me trying to get things going financially. But at the point at which lockdown happened, I just started to put together a proper good looking portfolio. And I had one major role that I was I'd shaken hands on, which was looking good for the way it was going to really help me through. And that stopped at that point, and it never came back again. So I'd got to a point a year into this, where I thought, actually, I can do this. And then the lockdown really blew holes in in my sense that this thing was going to work this freelancing concept was going to work because work that i'd lined up disappeared and didn't come back the other stuff did and we started working online so you had to adapt which i was more than happy to do because i've always been quite adaptable but yeah i mean that's as stressful as it gets no money (laughs) you've worked all your life Mm. and all of a sudden you find yourself in a position where you have no money coming in anymore in the interest of time, we're going to talk about one more thing, which is exercise and how that's positively impacted your mental health brain. So you started doing running when you were 30 years old. Yep. So how has it helped your physical health and your mental health? Oh, massively. Hugely important. I know I'm not the only person to say this. I hit 30 and I thought, I'm going to get fat and angry. Angry was a key bit of this. If I don't start doing so, I, I played football, but I'd always played football. Still play football now. And I was playing regularly every Wednesday night with a crew of us all played, but I thought I needed to do a bit more to sort of keep, well, to keep on top of it, to keep ahead of it, really. So I, on one holiday, got up in the morning, said, right, I'm going out for a run, which wasn't something I did 
very often. Went out for a run next morning, got up and did the same again. And from that point onwards, I've been running ever since. And I'm 54, just turned now. So going out three, four, five times a week for a run. We're not talking marathons here. We're talking like 5K or, you know, occasionally I do 10Ks. And I've done a couple of half marathons and stuff. But just the exercise of going out and doing the exercise, I think has been hugely important because that's the bit where you go out and you kind of clear your head a little bit, but also the the adrenaline rush you get from it, the endorphins and all the rest of it in the aftermath. You sleep better. I think that's a key aspect of it. I do anyway. You know, I run to make sure I sleep, which is a, an interesting point from the you know from point where we're at today. As I overslept ahead of the start of this conversation, which I very rarely do, but I sleep better. And also the other aspect of it, I still play football, and there's the social aspect of that as well, which I also think is very important. The getting out and doing stuff with people. So all the way through forever, forever when I lived in Leeds, I, the crew of us used to meet up on a Wednesday night and play football for an hour or so on a Wednesday night. And I'm you know in touch with a lot of those people still. That all finished in lockdown for me. It did anyway. I kind of lost the impetus with that, but I still play vets football. So I've got a, a squad of guys that I meet up with on a Sunday and we go and play football on a Sunday. And, you know we don't take it particularly seriously. It is competitive, but it's just being around the guys. We go for a drink afterwards. All that bit, I think, is very, very important. Also, because I appear on, on screen or have appeared on screen in the past, you do have an awareness of how you look. And this is actually probably quite relevant to a lot of you guys now because people are very much, I think, more aware of how they look now because they put themselves out there all the time on that public platform. Well, I've done it as a job for many, many years, and people do mention if there's something that they don't like about your appearance, they will tell you. And they will, <laughs> Whether they should is a different well, matter. Yeah, but yeah. Exactly, but they will. I know those comments can really hurt. So if somebody says, you look like you've had a good holiday or something like, you know what that means? That infers that you're looking fat, generally speaking, uh, or looks like you've enjoyed a few pints or whatever. And I'll react to that. I'll kind of bridle at that. And then I'll find myself inadvertently going for, oh, I'll just do an extra couple of K on the run this evening because I'm reacting to, to that comment that somebody's had. But actually, it's part of it. And, you know, I've done it to try and hold on to some element of the, the youthful appearance. I mean, look at Jeff Stelling on the telly. He still looks great. Jeff's done those huge long walks and all the rest of it, those marathon walks. And I've shared that experience with him, you know. So he's kept himself in trim. We, we who appear on these places where people can make comments about the way you look we do have an awareness of how we look so the fitness bit is a little bit about that as well about trying to just look okay and not invite the kind of criticism that people are unfortunately all too ready to offer in the, in this day and age and as a final question as we reflect on your mental health journey Bryn a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the Bryn who had just left Sky Sports after 20 odd years the Bryn, who was worrying about where his next bit of work was going to come from when the first lockdown was announced, or the Bryn who was looking through his fingers in that Notts County Wrexham game at the end of the season, what would you say to him, knowing what you do now? Well, usually I think the advice would be, don't worry, it'll be okay, because I am I am something of a pessimist, and, and anybody who's been around me for any length of time will determine that that is very much the case. I've been a pessimist, well, for a couple of reasons, one of which I won't go into, but the other was actually related to football when I threw myself enthusiastically into the thought that Wales were going to beat Romania and qualify for the, the USA World Cup in our final qualification match when we needed a win to go through. 
and I was like everybody else in Cardiff. I was at the game. Everybody else in Cardiff before the match was in a frenzy of anticipation and optimism around that fixture. And then, of course, naturally, you know what happens next. We lose the game. We don't qualify. And I, I actually vowed to myself in the afternoon. I thought I'd let myself get too carried away here. So I've gone from the highest high. I've fallen off a cliff emotionally here. I can't do that to myself again. So I've got to keep it even keel from this point onwards. And actually, I kind of have adhered to that by and large. So people will say I'm pessimistic and I'll say, well, we can definitely lose this, even if we're 3-0 up with 15 minutes to go. And that's not just a football adage, that could be a life adage as well, in a sense. But I think usually, actually, the you know, ultimately, with the challenges put in front of me from time to time, they're you know, nothing like the challenges that other people have faced. I'm not going to over-egg this pudding, but the challenges put in front of me from time to time, I've kind of... I've either gone over them or I've managed to go around them in most instances. So generally speaking, I come out okay. And so that's probably, you know, that's not very dramatic. It's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a huge message that one, but I think that's probably the ultimate take from particularly what's happened over the last few years. You have kind of got to have, as Ian Dowie described it, a bounce back ability Ian used. I think you have to try and have some bounce back ability. I know it can be easy to say and hard to do, but I think you have to try and kind of plow on. This is the bit where it does get tricky, but you have to try and plow on effectively and focus on something that, that you can get to, which will be the better place. And by and large, hopefully I've done that. And on that brilliant note of bounce back ability, Bryn Law, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to you, mate. You're very, very welcome. Good work. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Bryn for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I'll put some links to where you can buy Bryn's books if you're a Welsh sports fan and where to follow him on social media in the show notes. As always, I'll sign us off by saying please give us a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about the podcast and the work we're doing here at Vent. If you want to support us further, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating Apple podcast, or you can go to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash uk, or you can make one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show. Please do. I've only sold about five tickets. That's on Friday, September 29th, 2023 at Eton Manor Rugby Club. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash uk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.